0: Well, it's great to see you guys. And uh, thank you so much for all of you who joined us uh, last week. Anyone here on Easter Sunday? Uh, We had about 500 people here, which was kind of fun, so it was really good. Um, It was so amazing to be able to baptize people into the kingdom of God and just welcome them. Um, We had a great time, so thank you for joining us. Um, But if you can remember, all the way back to uh, before Easter, we spent some time as a church thinking about what the church is for, like those component, key parts of why a church exists, how it works in the world. And um, I hope it was inspiring. I hope it was encouraging to you. But I know a couple of you said to me, like, Ben, this is amazing, like, we love this Vision of church. But can you answer a question? Why does it always why does it not always work like that? Like why why does the church not always look like that in the world? And maybe if you're like me, you know, I've got so many friends who I grew up with going to church, and they were incredible people who ministered in their gifts and did things. And, and I catch up with them in various different places in the world, wherever they live now. And they say something to me like, yeah, I'm not really involved in a church anymore. And I'm like, why? Well, you know, what's going on in, in your life? Like, and, and, and what I never hear is I never hear, oh, I just don't love Jesus. I, I never hear, oh, I just don't believe it. But what I always seem to hear is one of two stories. Either, well, you know, life just kind of happens, doesn't it? And, you know, you, you get kids and you get busy and stuff happens on the weekend or whatever it is. Or, or much more alarmingly, I hear stories like this. Like, I used to love the church. I used to love going along, but then I got hurt. Th- then I witnessed something that really, really gave me sense of disillusionment. Maybe, maybe I had like a favorite celebrity pastor who I used to follow because they used to do incredible things, and, and they were up on a pedestal, and they seemed to have this incredible ministry, and then like they fell spectacularly from grace and did something terrible and took out like a bunch of people in their church. Or, or, or like some sort of like horrendous sexual scandal that's emerged in the in a church. Like we're, it doesn't matter what denomination or what strand of your church in. Like we've seen that over the last years. Maybe it's about hypocrisy, love of money, prosperity gospel stuff, awful treatment of particular groups of people, like totally inappropriately involved in politics. Like we could go on and on and on. But maybe, like me, you know people who have just gone. I love Jesus. I'm just not sure about the church anymore. And you know, I I feel that, right? I feel that desperately. When I see another headline that comes on the news, there's a part of me that just like breaks inside. I'm like, oh God, you must be joking. This cannot happen again. And and there's a part of me when I hear those stories, it's like, maybe it would be just better if we didn't do church. Maybe we just do Jesus and leave church out of it because church seems to go badly sometimes. But the conviction that I've come to over and over again as I've heard God speak to me in my life is this. You can't love me without loving my church. You can't love me without loving my bride. You can't love me without loving my people. And because of that, my conviction has always been, I need to fight to see something better written in the story of the church. And it's that kind of sense that we want to talk to over the next weeks. We're actually going to take this up towards the summer. We want to be honest. We want to be real. We want to be a little bit vulnerable as we talk about why the church sometimes goes really wrong and what we do to write a better story in the world. And I would just say this morning, if you have arrived, and and I know some of you, and some of you have this story where you have been broken and bruised and battered by churches in the past. I want to say thank you that you're here, and I hope this will be a story of healing and restoration and re-envisioning for what God really means. Um, And the way we're going to launch into it is we're actually going to look for a few minutes at the word vintage, um, because you'll be totally surprised, shocked, in fact, that I get asked no more than twenty five times a day um, about the name vintage and why you would call a church that um, and I always have to point out like i didn't actually come up with the name vintage I wish I had credit for that it was not me um, in fact it was about twelve years before Laura and I ever arrived in LA that um, Garen Litty Jones came to Santa Monica um, and when they came to plant a church they honestly didn't know what to call it um, they thought about some really cool names like you know ecclesia and Zoe and mosaic um, and they were and they were told yeah, you're not cool enough for that. So sorry. Um, and so then they thought about some like really historic names, you know, names like St. John's and Holy Trinity and um, uh, All Saints. And then they were told, yeah, no, you don't want to do that. Like, that sounds too much like a Catholic church in an LA context. Um, and so then they thought, well, what about a name like you know, Vintage? Because you know, Vintage connects that historicity, that connection to what's gone before. But it also talks about it in a new context. And so they started to explore it. Um, but Gare said to me the other the week, he said, like the, the moment when I, I decided we needed to call the church vintage, when God really spoke to me, um, and he reminded me of a time when, we, when, when Gare and Lizzie lived by a, a vineyard. Um, and I'll I confess, like, I don't know a lot about wine. like I'm learning a bit. Some of you are experts in the wine field, um, especially here in California. Um, but what I have come to discover is that if you want to make great wine, actually it takes a lot of care. It takes a lot of love. It takes a lot of perseverance. It takes just the right blend of a lot of things coming together to make great wine. But even if you put all of the things together, some years will be totally better than other years. That just occasionally you will get exactly the right blend of soil, pH, and wind, and sun, and temperatures, and rain, that will arrive in the right way so that you get the brilliant, most perfect crop of of grapes. And when you get that kind of crop of grapes, what you don't do is you don't suddenly like stand on, you know, press all the grapes and then like get it to ferment as quickly as possible and then you serve it to people. You don't do that. What you actually do as you get a vintage crop is you allow it time and you allow it space and you allow it sometimes even decades and decades to reach its fullness of potential and maturity. And you know that moment when you know we go to a, a great restaurant, and in my case, and somebody else orders the thousand-dollar bottle of wine, right? And they open it in front of you, and it's like this moment of spectacle, you know, because because something beautiful is like enfolding there. Like as the, the, they taste the wine, you know, the aroma is rich, the flavors balance. The body is round and smooth. It's full. It's rich. It's complex in its diversity. Yet it all kind of works together. It's deep and it's not shallow. It's powerful. It has this aftertaste and finish. You know, like there's just something so exciting that I dream about tasting one day. <laughs> right? There's something that's happened, not just over a few weeks, but over a few decades in some instances, to reach the fullness of the potential. And guess what when they were thinking about a name for church he felt God say this is the kind of church that I want in LA I want a church where you take all of those different component parts those ingredients the gospel the presence of Jesus the holy spirit that great theology loving worship all bottled into a community that over time would become God's vintage Church in the city. And so that's what we want to talk about together. We want to talk about it over the next weeks. And basically, if you want the blunt version, how do we become God's vintage church and not his two-buck chuck? <laughs> how do we become the really good stuff and not the stuff that you just drink and throw away? And so we're going to do it um, by looking at the book of Ephesians. And anyone ever read the book of Ephesians before? It's an incredible book, short book in the New Testament of the Bible. And today I'm just going to give you an overview and then we're going to dive into it bit by bit. And we're going to look at it because really the book of Ephesians answers this particular question. How can the church be all that it's called to be? How can it reach its maturity? How can it display God's beauty? Um, And so we're going to launch into it. And I I will say... um, Every week, if you have your Bible with you, that's always a really good thing that you can do, Uh, whether you have it on, you know, book form, papyrus form, app form, um, whatever else you might have it in, I I don't know. Um, But we're going to literally work our way through the story. Um, And we're going to start this morning um, at Ephesians 1, um, verse 1. And it goes like this. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Um, and straight away there, um, you'll see uh, immediately like, who it looks like that Paul is writing to. It looks like Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus. Paul is a guy you've probably heard of before. He is originally known as Saul Saul was a persecutor of the church. He was someone who hated Christians. He thought that they should be wiped out at all costs. And then dramatically like encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. And his life is like radically transformed and turned around. Paul goes on to become like the greatest church planter. Not just to churches in a Jewish context, but actually in the whole world. To Gentile churches. And it says here, he's notices, to God's holy people in Ephesus. Now, that kind of seems straightforward. Paul is clearly writing to one of his church plants in Ephesus. Um, except that um, many, many ancient copies of this uh, letter have been found, and the vast majority of them don't use the word Ephesus in them. In fact, they miss that little phrase out altogether. And what historians have realized is that this was a letter that was written by Paul, and it was written partly to the Ephesians, but it was also actually written to all of the churches, It was written to all of the churches across Jewish context and Gentile context, basically telling them, this is what you need to know about who God is, about what Jesus has done, and about how good the church can be. Verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that, that probably doesn't immediately trigger something with us, but it's actually a profound bit of theology right off the bat. It says there, God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Same sentence, same breath, same standard names put together. This is actually one of the very first biblical moves towards the Trinity, where it's understood as not just one God and then like this person, Jesus, but rather the divinity of Jesus standing alongside God, saying to them, you are part, church, of this bigger storybook. Um, Now, the book of Ephesians is kind of um, split into two parts. Um, I'm going to show you a really bad uh, drawing that I tried to make of it. That's my level of graphic design right there. Um, Effectively, the first half, uh, chapters 1 through 3, are all about the ingredients that you need to make a beautiful vintage church. Like the raw components of theology, of understanding of what Jesus did, of the gospel, of belief. But then um, in chapter 4 to 6, which we'll come to in a few weeks' time, you see how that has to be treated and outworked in the life of a local community for something to happen that's beautiful. And the linking word is actually in chapter 4, verse 1, that word which is therefore. And it's really fascinating because basically what it says is like, in light of all the things that Jesus did, in light of all that God has achieved and wants in the world, this is what you have to do in order to make a vintage church. And it's really important because maybe if you're like me, you know churches which are really good at theology. Right? They are really good at knowing the stuff. Maybe they've written books or have doctorates in it or have like whole like communication strategies and Bible studies around it, but yet somehow they don't seem to like feel anything like Jesus. And Paul says that's a reason for that, because it is actually as you work out your theology in a particular way in a community that God's vintage church can exist. Now Ephesians is not a letter that was like penned of an evening, like to Paul's mates. Hey guys, how you doing? Hope you, Sorry, not you don't type, do you? And, you know, hey guys, how you doing? You know, hope you're really well, love Paul. Like it wouldn't have been written like that. It would have actually been written uh, over many months There would have been lots of editors and people contributing to the work. And that's really important as we're going to launch into it in a moment, because you can't read it just like a kind of quick letter or an email on a Friday afternoon. You have to read it almost more like a beautiful poem or a beautiful literary work that is so dense that you have to kind of pick through it little bit by little bit, because there's just so much intentionality in it. Um, And we see that. Um, If you turn with me to verse 3, Ephesians 1, verse 3, which goes like this. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one that he loves. Until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of His glory. And breathe, (laughs) and breathe. That is one sentence in the Greek. It is 202 Greek words. It's the longest known sentence in Greek literature of the time, and it is a song, a poem of incredibly deep theology. Right? If you just heard me read that and were like, "Yeah, I've got nothing," (laughs) like I, I didn't catch a word you just said, Ben. Like, don't worry. Maybe though, you, you heard a bunch of words that you have heard in theological terms before. Words like predestination, and blessing, and redemption, and election, and the chosen. The kind of words that if you ever study at Fuller, go and study in an MDiv at Fuller, they'll bombard you with for years and years. And if you hear those words, like, it can seem like a bit of a, like an onslaught of theological terms. You're like, wow man, what are you, what are you actually trying to say? But what Paul's doing, which is really profound, is he's actually using a whole bunch of words which would have been fully understood in a Jewish context. The Jews would have understood everything that it means to be blessed and predestined and redeemed and elected and chosen. That's everything that they understood about who they were. But what Paul is very cunningly doing is he is bringing that Old Testament story and he's saying, now, something different has changed. Something has moved the needle in how you understand those terms. Uh, And to get an idea of it, you've actually got to take a few steps back. Um, So I hope you're ready for another one of my excellent drawings. Okay, I stole this one from Tim Mackey and the Bible Project. Okay, this is how it goes. So when God created the world and created humanity, he created it beautifully, there was an incredible unity. A unity between human beings, Adam and Eve. A unity between God and, the, and his children, humans. And a unity in the whole created order, the way that the whole world story. In fact, the only thing in Genesis 1 that God says is not good is when God says to Adam, it's not good that you're on your own. And so he creates Eve to create that human community. But when you go through to uh, Genesis chapter 3, one of the ways to look at what went wrong in the world was basically all about the rejection of God and the choosing to go our own way. That basically, up until this point, there was one story. There was one narrative line through creation. But when the fall happens, suddenly, and I've drawn it with these beautiful lines there. Look at, look at those. Amazing. Um, you, you can't do that without a lot of skill. Um, or with any skill. Um, suddenly, like, there's not one story anymore. There's not one narrative line through the world. If I could have drawn like 4 billion or 6 billion or whatever number of billion lines, that's the number of lines I'm going to draw. Because instead, what is happening here is that all the different human beings on the world are saying, actually, God, we want to be in charge. We are going to write our own story where you're not in control, where we are in control. And out of, of that story, like suddenly there is like brokenness brokenness that comes in the world people go their own way there's disunity it's like a me first story where we use each other where we compare ourselves to each other where we compete with each other it's basically like what happens on the freeway in the middle of russia right it's like dog eat dog kind of story and even though if you're like me you know you watch shows like friends to like look at what it's supposed to look like our experience is actually not of unity. Our experience is not of, of great community. It's actually a, a division. Uh, you know, Here in LA, we have like over 50% of young people who experience mental health issues. We, we maybe are in the most isolated and lonely city in the world, even though it's such a busy, bustling place. There is something that is broken. But, but God, out of his love, he, he doesn't leave the world just to its like seven billion different stories all competing with each other. He actually starts to write a rescue plan. And he does it, which is a very unique rescue plan, by, by choosing a particular group of people, the Israelites. Now, it's fair to say that the Israelites are not perfect. It's, it's probably fair to say that they're, they're not even very good a lot of the time. Um, if you ever read the Old Testament, you will read they are a pretty big mess. But what God says is he just chooses them because he loves them. And he says, through you, Abraham, who's the first one, and then Moses and David and the story, I am going to write a story of redeeming my people and bringing unity back to the earth. And so through Abraham and Moses, David, and the story, eventually we get to, through the lineage, we get to Jesus. And what we celebrated last week, if you were here, the death and resurrection of Jesus, One thing we we celebrate is that what Jesus comes to do is he comes to bring a reuniting, bring things back together. I don't know if you've got the last little slide there. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, all that was broken, all that was divided, all that was separate, all that was in a mess is now brought together in the cross. And that's what Paul is getting at in that massive great poem that I I just read to you there. He is basically saying, in Christ, you are now in a new story. You are in a new humanity. Not because you were an Israelite or you weren't an Israelite. Not because you're really good or you're really religious or you're really beautiful or you're really clever. No, for one reason alone, because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, you can be set free. When you are saved by Jesus, when you have faith in him, you become in him. And that's a really crucial phrase. You are in Jesus Christ. Um, And Christ is not Jesus' last name. But it it means king. When you become known and loved and saved by Jesus, you have Jesus as your representative. Now, that, that representative idea is actually from the Old Testament as well. If you remember uh, King David, and you remember King David, when he was a young guy, right, he gets that little stone and he flings it at the big giant, Goliath, and G- Goliath dies. Well, after that, it says, of da- it says of Israel, all Israel rejoiced and was glad. Why? Because they all benefited. They all received the victory that David had won for them. And what Paul's saying is that when you are in Christ, when you give your life to him, when you make Jesus your, your savior, everything that was true of Jesus on the cross, everything that was true and achieved in his victory suddenly is available to you. When you become a Christian, and last week we celebrated with those six people as they outwardly stood and were baptized as a symbol of their salvation. This is what you get, everything of Jesus. When you give your life to Jesus you become blessed, chosen, holy, blameless, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, wise, you have understanding, you are predestined, you are included, you are saved, you are sealed with the holy spirit, you are in line for an eternal inheritance, you are God's position, possession, you are for the praise of his glory. And it's really good. Amen. Man, you don't seem very excited. <laughs> it's really good. It's amazing. When you give your life to Jesus, all of those things become yours. But Paul says, like, that isn't the end of the story. Now, I think for most Christians, that is exactly where we end the story. We're like, Jesus died for me. I'm so excited. He died to save me from my sins. That means I'm now full of the Holy Spirit. I can live my best life. One day I'm going to go to heaven. The church can help me along the way. Amen. That's that's the story we hear. Now, it's not that those things aren't true. It's just that what Paul is saying is that's only part of the story. That's only a small part of what God is really doing. Because Jesus died on the cross not just to make you a new you. That wasn't his, his plan. It wasn't just so that there could be 7 billion new people. Actually, he died so that together we would become a new us. Together, we would become a new us. You notice it in Ephesians 2, 14, he says this. For he is himself our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself, notice this, one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. That's why in verse 19 he goes on and he says, Consequently, as a result, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Right, when God saved you, when he redeemed you, when he died, on, his, died for you, he did it to bring you into a bigger story, the story of redemption and transformation of the world. He did it to bring unity back to what was broken. He did it to make wholeness out of what was broken in the world, to bring dancing where there was mourning, to bring healing where there was sickness, to restore all things, all things in Christ. And we are part of that story. That that as we, the church, interact with that story in love, in forgiveness, in unity, in honouring one another, that is how we become the vintage community. The very thing that Jesus calls his bride his household, his temple, his people. And and that maybe should blow our vision of a church. It should blow our grid even of what it means to be a Christian. Because I think, and I'm so grateful for all those who have gone before us, we have made much too much a deal of our individual salvation. And we have made much too little a deal of the story that God wants to write us into in the sense of the world. And I think we do it because, of course, we live in a culture which is about me, right? It's about me first. The problem is, is that the gospel is not about you. It's about him. It's about him. Which means that the story is not supposed to have us as the central character. It's supposed to have him as the central character, right? And so when I asked at the beginning, I said, the church seems to go wrong. Why does the church go wrong? Here's the very first part of my answer, and there'll be more parts over the weeks to come, is simply this. We make it all about us, right? We make it all about us. Now, let me just have a good crack at church leaders before I do anything else, just so that I'm being, like, fair, right? One of the reasons churches go so badly wrong is when leaders make it all about them, right? when people get into church leadership positions because they want to be there for their power or their status or they want people to listen to them or they want to have their ego massaged or they want to get paid loads of money or have a brand or anything like that it's not even two buck chuck it's poison right it's just poison it's awful and it's destructive and it's wrong but before we just destroy all church leaders don't we all do something like that right now just follow this with me. Right. A- anyone got a favorite coffee shop near where they live? Right? Anyone prepared to tell me what their favorite coffee shop is where near where they live? Rosebud. Yeah. <laughs> Owner of Rosebud Coffee, right there. Uh, OK. <laughs> OK, Adam, what is it that you like about Rosebud Coffee? I get to see Dan's handsome face. OK, you love the community. Uh, I'm going to free phrase that. OK. All right. Anyone else got a favorite coffee shop that's not Rosebud? Lavender and honey, thank you, sir. What do you like about lavender and honey? Great drinks, okay. Anything else? Great vibe, vibe, okay, like maybe great great drinks, great music on there, great music, great smiles on people's faces, good buzz, okay. Yeah, anyone else got a favorite coffee shop? You're all lying, come on. (laughs) Yes. Republic of I. Republic of Pi. Republic of Pi. Okay, what's cool about it? Um the There's there a lot of wood everywhere. Good craft dreams. They got food if you wanted. There's like a tree that's inside. A tree There's inside. A tree that, like, the 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 outside area. It's a arts district. Start a ball of Awesome. I can't summarize all that for people who didn't hear, but <laughs> there was a tree. There was a tree. Um vibe, good vibe, Good music. Um, it's a convenient location. I mean, I, I'm just saying syndicate in Sierra Madre. That's where I live, right? It's cool. And, and obviously where Dan works as well, right? right? We have these things. We judge them on. Is it convenient? Is it a good vibe? Is it got good music? Is it got nice people? Do they smile lots in there? Does it smell good? Is it not too costly? Is it convenient to where I live? We go on and on. That's fine. But isn't that how we treat the church? Right? Isn't that how we treat the church? Oh man, I've got to find myself a church where they've got good music, where, where it smells good, where, where it's not too cold and it's not too hot and they don't have a tree inside, but they have lots of wood or you know, it looks beautiful and its parking is good and, and the community is really nice to me and the kids ministry is really great and, and everything kind of suits what I want in, in life and it's really great. Until, like a coffee shop, it's not really great anymore and a better one opens down the street. That's more convenient, right? Or it's a little bit better value or it's a little bit more shiny and they have a little bit better drinks. And so when we ditch it and we go and find another one and another one and another one, right? The problem is, of course, is that we're writing the same story. We are writing the it's all about me story. The story that God exists to serve me and bless me and help me along my best life to get to heaven. That is not the good news of Jesus Christ. That is not. That's two-buck Chuck. And that's how you get to two-buck Chuck. That's why churches become these consumeristic organizations of trying to impress and entertain people because they're so desperately anxious that you're all going to leave and go to the next shiny church that's opening down the street, just being honest, right? So how do you write a better story? Because there is a better story. Paul's talking about a story. And there's two things I want to tell you this morning. The first is this. It's got to be all about Jesus. It has to be all for, consumed by, for the glory and the fame of Jesus. Right? If a church is about anything other than Jesus, it's toast. Right? If, if a church gets about its programs or its buildings or its entertainment value or its corporate branding or its sponsorship or its budgets or its staffing, it's done. That's not vintage church. It has to be about Jesus. But it's the same for us. We come to a church building. We go to community groups, not for us, but for him. Right? When we come to church, the point is not to sing songs because we really like songs because they make us feel better about ourselves. No, we come to worship Jesus for all that he is and he's done. Right? When we stop and we listen and we pray, we're not doing it so that God will somehow give us something and make us feel better. We're doing it because we wanna hear what he has to say to us, right? When we give money in the offering, we're not doing it so that we're gonna get something back. We're doing it because we love him and he's worth loving and he's worth giving of our best, of our time and our talent and our treasure too. Are you with me? It's got to be about Jesus for his praise, for his glory, for his fame, because he is worth it. It's got to be about him. But the second thing is that it has to be a maturing and a growing community. You know, I, 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 think, um, I, I think one of, the, one of the, the, the results of living in an instant gratification kind of culture that we live in, clickbait terms, is that we kind of think if something doesn't work within about 10 seconds, it's probably broken, <laughs> right? We probably should try something else. Like when Paul speaks in this passage, he talks about maturing into a new identity in Christ. What he basically says is on day one, when you give your life to Jesus, you become a new creation. It's just that it's going to take quite a long time with other people around you for you to mature into that thing that you have been set aside to be. Um, 2010, I became a dad for the first time. my My son, will was born, um, had a little bit of advance notice about nine months specifically um, and I did everything that I could you know prepare to do as a dad. I don't know if uh, it happens here, but there were these like classes you could go to where they would have a doll and like a diaper filled with peanut butter, and they made the dads kind of like. You have to hold the thing you know which way up do you put the baby, and where does the diaper go? you know, and we, we got the nursery ready and we painted it and all that we did everything we could. but you know on the sixth of December two thousand and ten, like I became I became a dad um, I, I didn 't think I did anything very helpful in the moment. I just stood there and tried not to faint but but you know at that moment, uh, this little five pound baby boy was born. Now the truth is, I was scared witless because I was like, I have no idea how to be a dad. You know, when we tried to take Will home for the first time, it took us about like three hours to get him into his car seat, um, and then like probably another five hours to drive the two miles home because we were so desperately worried about breaking him. Right? You know, I I was a dad, but the truth is, I didn't really know what it was to be a dad, and I didn't really have an identity as a dad. I didn't feel it. Now, twelve years on. Last Sunday, we got to baptize our son. Well, it was amazing. It was incredible. What a proud moment as a parent to be able to do that. I feel more like a dad now. I'm not perfect. I mess it up all the time. But I have like, learned my identity more and more of being a dad. Why? Because I've done it in community with other people, with my son, with my daughter now. With other people around us who've like been mentoring us and helping us and like we've been able to follow and watch what they do. Like we have become, I have become more of a dad. And the same's kind of true when you become a Christian. Like on day one, you might have accepted Jesus and you have found an identity in the kingdom of heaven, but you might not feel it. You might not feel it. But if you want to become the mature Christian, the follower of Jesus that you have been invited to be, this is what it's going to take. Other people over a whole period of time walking in the same direction of you, probably not over a week, probably not over even a stick six or a couple of months or even a couple of years, but over a lifetime of walking with others. It's why you can't be a solitary Christian. Being a solitary Christian is like high-fiving no one. <laughs> like, it doesn't work. It was never how it was intended to be. When Paul, made you, Paul speaks of Jesus, he says he made you part of a new humanity. And to be part of a new humanity, even though you don't feel it, even though you don't act like it, even though you don't look like it at time, you are becoming all that God designed you to be. With the Holy Spirit, in the messiness and the brokenness of community, we get to look back one day and say, I used to be like Two Buck Chuck, but actually as I matured with other people, I became something really special. And it's that which the church is supposed to be like. As we represent God, like sometimes very messy family, we come with humility, in our diversity, with our deep relationships and our commitment to one another, where we honor each other, where we are vulnerable, where we accept and for- forgive, and we stand in grace and generosity marked by the unity of Jesus Christ, full of his power and his love. That's the beginnings of how we become like the vintage community. It's a beautiful, high, lofty calling. When I heard God say, you can't love me without the church, this is why. It's because this is how God wants to outwork his plans and his purposes in the world, to make a vintage, beautiful, set-aside community that would radiate love, that would radiate unity, that would radiate the good news of salvation into a world that's just so desperately in need of it. Amen? Do you want to stand? Let's pray.